It starts off as a prose poem, and then it takes a hard turn into limerick. (laughs) Welcome to You're Wrong About. I'm Sarah Marshall, and today we are talking about Chris McCandless. We are joined today by our fan favorite survival correspondent, Blair Braverman. Blair joined us recently to talk about baby Jessica, and before that to talk about the survival of the passengers of Flight 571 after it crashed in the Andes. She talks about survival in all the ways we're used to thinking about it, and so many ways we're not, and I'm so happy to have her back. She is also the author of a recent novel called Small Game, which is all about survival and my favorite thing, feelings. Thank you so much, by the way, to everybody who supports us on Patreon or Apple Plus subscriptions. Uh, We have a new episode coming out soon, which is extremely close to my heart on the state of figure skating in the United States. And co-hosting it with me are my producer, Carolyn Kendrick, and my wonderful ghost guest, Jamie Loftus. We really get into how to fix figure skating, you guys. If you're wondering, you should just listen. (laughs) We have a spring tour coming up. If you want to find out more about the shows or where to get tickets, there's a link to that in our show notes, also in our bios on social media. We'll be going to Detroit, Chicago, Minneapolis, Toronto, Manhattan, and Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Washington, D.C., Boston, Burlington, Vermont, and of course, Montreal. We hope you can come. So back to our episode today, we are talking about Chris McCandless, a figure who many of us know through either the book or the movie Into the Wild, and also through the kind of cultural legacy that he has continued to have and that we're going to try and explore today. And because we're talking about this story, we also have some content warnings for you specifically for parental and domestic abuse, for starvation, and all the effects that has on the body, uh, and for the Holocaust, which we talk about a couple of times. Speaking of our content warnings, it's worth pointing out that the movie Into the Wild was directed by and starred two men, Sean Penn and Emile Hirsch, who allegedly have very seriously abused women, which is yet another reminder that stories of abuse, stories of domestic abuse, stories of violence against women are unavoidably and absolutely everywhere and part of every story we tell, it seems to me. And here comes another story like that. Thank you so much for coming with us as we try to understand this story. And now here's our episode. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast where sometimes Blair Braverman comes by and we talk about survival in every form, and she's back. Welcome, Blair. Hi, Sarah. So you've been on three episodes of the show, and I feel like I didn't see this coming. It kind of just happened organically, but we have become a show where survival and its various implications and meanings and the ways we look for it and the places where we don't look for it, but should, has become a theme on the show. And I think that it was always there, but I think that you were the one who made it explicit. And then people have responded so strongly to that, that it's like, yeah, we got to keep talking about it. 
Oh, I love that because I love talking to you, but I do think it was always there. I think it was always there and we're just, you know, teasing it out at the surface a little bit more. Right. We're getting to the, like the literal stories. And, um, we're talking about Chris McCandless, who is the subject of the John Krakauer book and Emil Hirsch movie, Into the Wild. These were both very big culturally, as far as I can tell, when we were teenagers. So in the 2000s. And I have never met someone who doesn't have a, a strong opinion about Chris McCandless. And I was thinking today, Chris McCandless to me and people who listen to the show even somewhat regularly will know this is my highest praise, I think is an honorary bimbo because he's someone whose cultural punishment seems way out of proportion to what he did on this planet and the fact that he did. I don't think you can argue that he hurt anyone besides himself. And that's a very bimbo experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that seems absolutely right on. This is a story that a lot of people know at least the broad outlines of. And you do too, right? Mm -hmm. You you have some understanding of this story. What What's your understanding of it? Okay, so my this was something that I first heard about as a teenager because I was a crunchy little teenager with crunchy little <laughs> friends. And we loved fantasizing about, you know, like living in a tree to keep it from getting chopped down and stuff like that, which honestly, I still think I should be doing. But Into the Wild was a book that I believe came out in the 90s by John Krakauer, who is a writer who who I really like and think is good and also consistently sells well in airports. And that's not a backhanded compliment. It's just true. <laughs> he has, he has like nailed it. Like he's, he's a brilliant outdoors person. He sells airport books. Like it, tremendous respect for the guy. Yeah. Like you and I have talked many times about how kind of all we want is to have books that sell well in airports. I've always thought as a writer, particularly when I was starting out as a writer, that my goal was to write things that people would read by choice. That always seemed like an actually pretty high bar to me. Like if people have free time and they're choosing to spend that time with your words, that to me is just the greatest honor. And I feel like airplanes are, they're sort of like in the middle there where it's not quite free time, but like you're trying to get your head out of the space. Right. It's like, I think there's a certain like airport books to me are books that are able to really transport you in some way or just really hold your attention. Yeah. I always like to read Stephen King on a plane. So yes, Sean Krakauer, he wrote Into the Wild, very successful book made into a movie when you and I, Blair, were in high school, which is a beautiful movie, like beautifully shot. It kind of in the same way I think that Grizzly Man does kind of shows you like it's, it's really great to live a doomed life. <laughs> and so then like... I used to teach writing classes at Portland State, and the thing I found the hardest was the thing, and anyone who's taught, uh, most age groups will know this, where you're trying to start a conversation desperately, and you're pitching all these like conversation starting questions, and everyone is just looking back at you like the background anchovies and SpongeBob. And what I realized was that Into the Wild was a great text to discuss, because the the normal kind of very thick ice was broken because everyone has a strong feeling about Chris McCandless. I remember initially feeling like this is so dumb. This is like the folly of teenage boys. I hate it. Why are we valorizing this? These are my 17 year old thoughts. Then coming around to the part of me that was like, 
but I want to go off the grid and kayak to Mexicali and whatever. And then finally arriving, I think, at this place where I am currently of like, I think here was someone who lived by conviction and was more kind of extreme in like living up to his beliefs than most of us ever will be. And there's like a profound charisma to that. And also that he was young and, and also that we're obsessed with the question of how much it was his own fault that he died, which I think is kind of a fascinating thing to be fixated on. And I know that we're going to talk about how that conversation has changed over the years. Cause I feel like science is discovering new things about Chris McCandless every day. Well, the, the story has changed from when it first came out, from when you and I first encountered it. Yeah. It's changed a couple times. And those changes are subtle, but they, they do affect people's understanding of it. So I'm going to mm-hmm. start the story at the beginning and do a, a somewhat broad overview because I know a lot of people are going to be familiar with it or familiar with parts of it mm-hmm. from the book or the movie. Before we get into the story, think about what your impression of Chris McCandless is. What, mm. if, if you have a strong feeling about him, try to identify that now and see if it's the same at the end. And maybe it will be. Um, but I'd be curious to hear about it. Yeah. I, as would I. And also I, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the story, but a ton aren't. And despite there being a very good book and slightly less good movie about it, we don't have the Blair version. I think that that's necessary personally. Okay. Well, well, I'll jump in and I'll start with, uh, Chris's parents. His mother, uh, her name is Billy. She was a dance student from Iron Mountain, Michigan, Sarah, <gasps> where I think we've been together. Mm-hmm. Um, and she thought dance was going to get her out of her small town. She applied to be a stewardess, but she wasn't tall enough. Hmm. Uh, and she finally landed a secretary job at Hughes Aircraft, mm-hmm. where her boss was Walt McCandless who was married to a woman named Marcia who had three kids and another kid on the way. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, immediately they began an affair. Walt told Billy that he was leaving his wife, Marcia, which is sort of the classic story that mm-hmm. um, men tell mistresses. He did not leave Marcia. In fact, Marcia was trying to leave him and he was getting physically violent with her. There was a point he even fractured a vertebra in her back. Mm. Deep violence. When Billy got pregnant, Walt ended up having two families at the same time. He split his time between both women and they both knew about each other. Hmm. And according to Marsha, Walt was proud of having, uh, quote, produced so many offspring. Oh, God. And his sister, Corrine, was born uh, three years later in 1971. Chris was born in February 1968. And throughout their childhood... Their parents were violent and the kids were forced to witness this. When it was over, Billy would say, basically, this is because of Chris. I got trapped with him because Chris was born. Chris grew up feeling horrific about that as if he had ruined his mother's life. I'm such a broken record about this, but I feel like it's, it's just worth pointing out that this is the period when, you know, and this period lasted for a long time and never really ended when pundits on both sides are like, you know, the divorce rate is sky high in this country. It's really terrible. It's a moral conundrum. And it's like, what? You know, like this, this rationale of like, save the marriage, protect the child, save the marriage, protect the child, right? That like marriages remaining intact are like 
obviously necessary to the health and safety of everyone involved. And you just look at it and you're like, isn't it obvious that like so many, like the divorce rate was really much lower than it should have been? It, so the other thing about all this violence is that it did not really appear in the book Into the Wild. Right. These are things that Chris's sister, Corrine, has talked about later. She wrote her own book called The Wild Truth that came out in 2014, which is where these details are coming from for me. So the first decades of conversation about Chris McCandless mm -hmm. do not take the full story into account. Yeah. So this family would always keep up appearances. You know, Walt was wealthy. He worked for NASA at one point. He would get home in his Cadillac and the kids would hide. He mm. made, uh, you know, finally Marcia did leave him and he was with Billy more full time and he would make her uh, wear a short skirt and three inch heels and perfect makeup whenever he got home from work. Colleagues would come over and they would just show off being the perfect family. And they would go to church and show off being the perfect family. And Corrine has said that some of the only times they were happy were when they went camping mm. altogether because they were away from all the stress. They were away from the pressure. They were distracted. They had something to focus on. So even as a little kid, nature was the place where Chris escaped. Then when they, when they were a little bit older, they were walking home from church. He and his sister would always take a detour through the woods and he loved it. He would spend forever just looking at bugs, plants, everything. It just, the woods were always a place of peace for him. They were always a refuge where he could get away from violence. I guess I want to call back to something that you've talked about before. I think when we did the Dyatlov Pass episode about, you know, how, like, I have made the point to you in the past that stories of being like lost in the woods, you know, stuck in an avalanche, whatever, are particularly scary to me because there's no human element, right? There's no one you can fantasize that you can like talk out of kidnapping you, which is the kind of thing that I waste my time on. And your point in return, which I think is, has been very persuasive to me and a lot of other people who heard that episode is that like the lack of intent is what makes it comforting. Right. And it, that's what Absolutely. this is making me think of is that like the, the feeling of being like in the woods is the feeling of there being no dads. <laughs> It's indifference. You're like inside of a being that's so giant that you're this tiny microbe inside of. And that, and I think like the thing that happens with parents and kind of parental abuse situations potentially is that parents kind of look at you and see the part of themselves that they want to destroy. Right. And like mm. the forest doesn't want to destroy you for personal reasons. It just, you know, won't intervene if you fall in a ravine or something. I didn't mean to rhyme that. <laughs> just everything you say is poetry <laughs> it starts off as a prose poem and then it takes a hard turn into limerick <laughs> <laughs> please please do a podcast of uh, limerick at some point <laughs> but i mean yeah this is just this is information that may affect darkens and sort of contrasts the colors of the picture so much and also i understand that this didn't come out initially because there's, you know, many reasons why books don't or can't talk about abuse. But I feel like this is the kind of thing that if you grow up in this family, like it might just take a while and like some amount of aging and learning to be like, oh, that wasn't a, a very abusive household I grew up in. You know, it was a conscious decision uh, that was meant to be protective. Mm. 
Yeah. But, you know, Chris gets older. I can't speak for him and say his biggest goal, but a, a very clear goal he has, a huge thing he's trying to do is always escape from his house. Mm-hmm. He discovers running. You know, he tells his sister, everything in my head gets organized when I run. He tells his friend on the track team, Eric Hathaway, he'd tell us to think about all the evil in the world, all the hatred, and imagine ourselves running against the forces of darkness, the evil wall that was trying to keep us from running our best. So this kid is intense. Mm -hmm. He has a very strong reputation for his intensity. He gets angry at himself. He's hard on himself about things. He holds himself to a very high standard. You know, we know that he had a high school girlfriend named Julie mm-hmm. and he loved her. He told her he loved her. He was reading Jack London and a lot of literature at the time. And he told Julie he wanted to go to Alaska with her. But she broke up with him because it was a little too intense for her. Maybe it, she didn't yeah. want to be as serious as he was. And, and that, mm-hmm. that was very hard for him. Finally, he graduates high school. He's old enough to escape and he just leaves. Mm -hmm. He spends the summer after high school driving around the Southwest. He doesn't come back until two days before he's supposed to start college. He's lost a ton of weight. He's very, very thin. He has long hair. He has a long beard. And he walks into his dorm room at Emory with a machete and a rifle. Oh, God. (laughs) Can Can you imagine being that roommate? He just walked out of the jungle with a rare orchid specimen in his knapsack. Exactly. Um, and then he cleans up for college. Mm-hmm. He gets good grades. You know, he cuts his hair. A family friend had given him a college fund in, in part because she saw the abuse and sort of wanted to give the kids a way out. And he managed mm. this fund himself mm. um, very well. He didn't use a lot of it. He lived what people called a monkish life. Very mm-hmm. simple. He didn't have a phone. And he seemed to thrive. He majored in history and anthropology. He edited the student paper. This surprised me. Maybe it will surprise you. He co-founded the Young Republicans Club in college. I didn't remember that but or didn't know that, but I didn't. I knew that he had written something that was like sort of supportive to some extent of a Reagan policy or was kind of pro-Reagan in some way. And like, but also college is a time to have terrible ideas and Republicanism is one of them. His his values, like everything we know about his values is he cared tremendously about apartheid in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, he he talked to his friends about wanting to smuggle weapons into South Africa to help, you know, overthrow apartheid, which mm-hmm. he I don't I don't think that panned out. <laughs> but he he cared very much about justice. Right. He seems to be doing well in college because he's to a certain degree, he has escaped and mm-hmm. he. He's worried about his sister, who's younger than him. He wrote her a letter that said, um, the events that we suffered are so outlandish in their proportion that it is useless to try to explain them to anybody mm. because they will never believe you. Mm. They will think you are some kind of freak, some kind of outrageous liar and exaggerator. They will think that you simply couldn't handle the normal conflicts which all teenagers and their parents go through. Yeah. You know, it was an astute observation on his part because sure enough, as more of the story came out, people, people did say that about him. Yeah. God. And he, he graduates in 1990. His transcript comes out in June. He has it mailed to his parents. After that, they don't hear from him for a while mm-hmm. when they still haven't heard from him by August. And remember, he doesn't have a phone. Mm-hmm. 
they drive out to visit him and they see a for rent sign on his apartment. Hmm. And then they get home again and they find all the letters that they've mailed him over the summer <laughs> have been returned because Chris had the post office hold them mm-hmm. so that his parents would take quite a while to realize he was missing. He has made himself disappear. Hmm. Hmm. And like, good work. I know. I know. He did it. He did it. He, he got away. You know, from this point on, his parents don't know anything about what he's up to. Mm-hmm. You know, he has he has vanished. Chris McCandless has vanished. He gives himself a new name, Alexander Supertramp. I love I always forget and love remembering that he rechristened himself Alexander Supertramp. It's so great. I love the idea of being a Supertramp. This makes me happy. <laughs> I also I know we're going to get to this, but let me just point out that like the ending of Sean Penn's Into the Wild. Sean Penn, a man who knows nothing of domestic abuse, Ends with like Chris in a vision, like hugging his nice old dad, William Hurt, and crying, you know? And it's like, mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. anyway, not to, not to spoil the story, but yeah, I don't, I, um, hmm, I have some notes. But he, he is not hugging his parents and smiling right now. Mm-hmm. He has gone west. Alexander Supertramp has gone west and he has, a bunch of adventures. He goes to Lake Mead. He drives off the road down a riverbed to camp. He like burns his money, makes a little pile of it. Mm-hmm. Then he gets caught in a flash flood. He abandons his car. He hitchhikes. He goes to Lake Tahoe, Sierra Nevadas. He hikes part of the PCT, the Pacific Crest Trail. Famously, he paddles a canoe 400 miles down the Colorado River to the Gulf of Mexico. He slips over the border, gets stuck in like a swamp. <laughs> Uh, gets saved by some duck hunting guides. You know, he, it, this, this man is living. <laughs> While this is going on, his parents, Walt and Billy, hire a private detective to find him. Hmm. The detective finds out that Chris has donated all the remainder of his college fund, around $24,000 to Oxfam. Hmm. Mm-hmm. clearly this is when the family knows without a doubt he didn't want to be found. And the detective keeps trying to track him, but because Chris is always moving, he can never quite catch up. Wow. He goes to Las Vegas. He goes to Arizona. He uh, works at a McDonald's uh, where he even sets up a bank account at that point under the name Chris McCandless. Mm. Um, he's working different places. When he gets into town, he'll bury his money and then he digs it up again when he leaves. Just like someone in the Bible would do. <laughs> Um, he buries his camera. That doesn't go so well. He works at a grain elevator in North Dakota for a guy named Wayne Westerberg. And here's how Westerberg described him. He was the hardest worker I'd ever seen. Didn't matter what it was, he would do it. Hard physical labor, mucking rotten grain and dead rats out of the bottom of the hole. If he started a job, he'd finish it. It was almost like a moral thing for him. Hmm. He read a lot used a lot of big words. Sometimes he tried too hard to make sense of the world, to figure out why people were bad to each other so often. I tried to tell him it was a mistake to get too deep into that kind of stuff, but Alex got stuck on things. He always had to know the absolute right answer before he could go on to the next thing. Mm. Hmm. I love that. While he's traveling, um, while he's staying in these different places, Chris is making really deep connections with people. Mm. There are people who came to to love him during this time, to love him like family. And 
you know, who wanted him to stay with them. He never did. He would always move on. He would sort of touch people's lives and move on. Um, and then he'd send them postcards and he'd stay in touch. And the one thing he always talked about during this big journey is going to Alaska. That was his ultimate goal. So while he's doing all these things, working places, traveling, uh, getting stuck in the Gulf of Mexico, all these things, he's thinking about Alaska, he's getting in shape, mm. he's researching uh, and asking people about living off the land. And finally, the time has come for him to go north after two years of travel. And can you talk about, I feel like you understand better than a lot of people and have certainly thought a lot more about it, sort of Alaska as as the license plates say, the last frontier, and what that means sort of in people's ideas of it and their ideas of what role it's going to play in, in their life and, you know, becoming the person that they want to be. Well, Alaska is a symbol. Yeah. And a lot of places are symbols, but a lot in Alaska, you really see it. It represents different things for different people. It represents freedom. It represents lawlessness. It represents anonymity you know, starting over, it represents sort of the closest you can get to true wilderness. I'm not saying uh, these things are accurate or not, mm-hmm, but this is, mm-hmm. you know, what it means in the popular imagination. You know, there's a huge phenomenon of of people going north, young people going north to sort of confront these things and and learn something about themselves along the way. Chris absolutely saw Alaska as a symbol. I mean, mm-hmm. he was reading the Call of the Wild, you know, which I can say as a musher is just a highly, highly inaccurate book. <laughs> <laughs> if you have one takeaway, please let it be that. And the Call of the Wild is like, it's about a domesticated dog, right? He's, he's a fancy, you know, a dog who went to private college and, and now he's in Alaska finding himself, you could say. It like contributes so much to the alpha myth of, you know, dogs establishing authority of, over each other through violence. Yeah. And in particular, like sled dogs doing that, mm-hmm. which just, you know, I could go on a whole thing. That's not actually how they work mm-hmm. together. You know, that's not how you become a lead dog by like killing the other dogs. Like this is not, this is not a thing. But anyway, business types like to fantasize that that's how it works in nature. So they can, you know, backstab everyone and have no real relationships and drop dead of a heart attack at 50. It's exactly, it's a human fantasy projected onto dogs that then like makes people think it has scientific legitimacy. But you know what? (laughs) We'll give Chris a pass. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the the most important thing it's doing is giving him a way out of a terrible situation. And, and the way out is North. It is a clean slate for him. Mm-hmm. So in April 1992, he leaves South Dakota. He catches a ride in a truck hauling sunflower seeds and hitchhikes his way to Alaska. Now, this drive from the lower 48 to Alaska mm-hmm. follows a route called the Alaska Highway that goes north through the Yukon and then turns west. It is a hard place to hitchhike. Mm-hmm. It is hard for him. It is hard for anyone. Sarah, you and I have made that drive together. How would you describe it? It's very dramatic. You're, it's a very vulnerable feeling. I think you just feel like you're sort of exposed to the sight of God. You're driving through massive spaces. Yeah. There's very few, you know, resources. Like to give you an example of this place where he's hitchhiking, and this was obviously in 1992. So I'm talking about mm-hmm. 30 years later. 
my husband and I make this drive a couple times a year because uh, we're dog sledders. So we go up to Alaska. That's where a lot of dog sledding happens. Then we come home to Wisconsin. We go back again, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. We've picked up hitchhikers on this route. We have hitchhiked on this route when the truck breaks down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like sometimes like a day's drive between hotels. And one day we like get to this hotel that we've planned. Like we haven't seen anyone in so many hours, not a gas station, mm-hmm. nothing. If your car breaks down, like you are just going to be stuck there for quite a while. We get to this hotel, we go in, we're like, we need a room. We've stayed there before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's nothing else for hours in every direction. And uh, there's some people at the hotel. It's cold in the hotel is what we notice. The people are like, sure, yeah, you can you can have a room. You can pay in the morning. And uh, they like tell us which room to go to. It's it's unlocked. There's no no lock in the door. There's no key or whatever. And it's really cold in the hotel room. It's very cold. I mean, it's practically as cold as outside. Their heating must be broken or something. But we just get our sleeping bags and we sleep on top of the bed. And like the plumbing isn't working. But like this is all sort of predictable. Right. Like just things break a lot up there. Um, and in the morning we come down and we're hoping there's some sort of breakfast and we're sort of cold because <laughs> it's below freezing in our room. And the same people are like sitting around in the common area of the hotel. And, uh, they're like, yeah, so here's this notebook. Um, just write your credit card number in the notebook, uh, in order to pay. And we open the notebook and it's just like a bunch of people have written their credit card numbers Amazing. in the notebook. And we're like, you know what? We're going to give you cash. And <laughs> so, so we give them cash. We keep driving. We don't think about it anymore. A year later, we make that same drive. We plan to stay at that same hotel. We get into the hotel. It's warm. All the lights are on. It's a totally different vibe. And we're like, what happened last year? Like, you know, you got, you know, you refurbished or something. And the owners are like, oh, no, we were closed last year. <laughs> This hotel has been dead for 30 years. <laughs> and we're like, I, no, we, we, like one year ago this week, we stayed here and we paid and we stayed in a room and your heat was broken. And it turns out the hotel had been closed down. There were just squatters in the living room, like, you know, taking people's credit cards and sending them to random rooms because they knew they wouldn't be caught. Yeah. And which is like expert level, right? Because like, you know, an amateur like me would just sort of like huddle up and be like, well, this is mine now. But no, you got to make a profit. (laughs) You know, resourcefulness. So like, this is what the Alaska Highway is like. Like, I don't, they probably never got caught. Like, this is, it's lawless. Like, there's hardly anyone on it and everyone is a character. So I'm honestly happy for Chris that he, he got to have so much life. And that's seems like part of it. For sure. And he, he eventually makes it up. He makes it up to Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. Now, when he makes it to Fairbanks, he spends a couple days there. He's mainly at the university. He's looking at books. He buys a field guide to plants and he buys a used gun, mm-hmm. a 22 caliber rifle in a parking lot for like $125. Mm-hmm. Then he hitchhikes out of town. He gets picked up by a guy named Jim Galeen. And Chris tells Jim he's from South Dakota and that his plan is to live off the land for a while. He has a backpack that's not very big, like 25 pounds, like a day pack and Mm -hmm. like a significant portion of the weight is books. So like what I carry in a tote, basically, most of the time. Yeah, Yeah. it's like your tote bag. He has a rifle. This rifle is not very big. Yeah. 22 caliber. Like it's this is not a big gun. 
He also has really shitty hiking boots. He has no snowshoes. He has no compass. The driver, Jim, who picked him up, is worried about the dude. Mm-hmm. He's very nice. He actually offers to drive Chris to Anchorage and buy him adequate equipment, mm-hmm. which Chris staunchly refuses. But he does agree to take a pair of old extra tufts, which are, if you don't know extra tufts, they're like the classic Alaskan boot. Mm. They're like, you know, neoprene, I think, rubber, like rain boots, but they're very tough, you know, so at least he has something waterproof for his feet. Mm-hmm. Chris gets dropped off near something called the Stampede Trail and he walks into the wild. On his second day, he reaches the Teklanika River which has mm-hmm. ice all along its banks. I had trouble figuring out how to pronounce this river. Just so you know, I ended up calling multiple Alaskans and they said Teklanika. So so we're going with that, even though um, the internet sometimes says otherwise. You know what? The internet says a lot of things is what I've noticed about it. <laughs> That's true. We're going with the Alaskans. Yeah. So the Teklanika River, probably thigh deep. Mm, God, you know, it's not easy if if you have forded a thigh deep, fast moving river like that's treacherous. But Chris gets through it. He fords the river and he keeps going. Yeah. And also, I mean, if it's April, I assume that water is pretty frigid. Oh, yeah. Everything is frigid. This was it was it was snow like the other day. (laughs) Eventually, Chris finds a bus in the wilderness. Now, the bus It's there because it's a remnant of an old construction project from the 1960s that was abandoned. And it got left behind as a shelter cabin. And a shelter cabin is basically a very simple cabin in the wilderness where anyone can stay. It's unlocked if they need a place to sleep, Mm -hmm. if they need a shelter that'll save their lives in a storm. You know, I've stayed in a bunch of these in the wilderness. They're not usually buses, but like they vary dramatically from super dilapidated shacks to like super cozy log cabins. Mm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they go months or longer without anyone stopping by. And sometimes a bunch of people will be there on the same day. And there, there's kind of an etiquette, like mm. you want to leave kindling for the next person. If you use all the firewood, you don't want to leave it empty. You want to bring in more kindling. Mm-hmm. Or if you have extra food in a can or something, you might leave it there. So I hope for Chris that there was like some stuff in the cabin, Mm -hmm. Um, but it is a shelter. Mm -hmm. So he writes this inside the bus, capital letters. Two years he walks the earth, no phone, no pool, no pets, no cigarettes, ultimate freedom, an extremist, an aesthetic voyager whose home is the road. Escaped from Atlanta, thou shalt not return because the West is the best. And now, after two rambling years, comes the final and greatest adventure, the climactic battle to kill the false being within and victoriously conclude the spiritual revolution. Ten days and nights of freight trains and hitchhiking bring him to the great white north. No longer to be poisoned by civilization, he flees Mm. and walks alone upon the land to become lost in the wild. Alexander Supertramp, May 1992. I have so many thoughts. (laughs) He's grandiose. Oh, yeah. I love that this is a combination of him describing himself as a Christ figure 
mm-hmm. not as like a prophet, but kind of in his own life, and also using the lyrics to King of the Road, <laughs> classic song, and also the Doors lyrics. Cause like the wait, there's the Doors lyrics. Well, kind there? of, cause the West is the best. Like, I think that was an old car ad from the 50s and 60s. <laughs> and then like it turns up, and I think the end by the Doors, one of the like rambly talk singy sort of Jim Morrison American poet songs. I fucking love the Doors. And like the way I feel about this is like, I think based on the fact that part of me was and still is an intense teenage boy. You know, and I have done the thing of being like, I'm free. I'm, I'm getting away from codependency by living on the road and, and being a, a tumbleweed blowing in the wind like Jack Dawson. I feel like when you have come to Alaska with us, you were doing your Chris McCandless. I was exactly. So it's like, how hard can I be on the guy? <laughs> right. <laughs> What's the point of that? I remember in the past being really struck by, I haven't thought of it in a long time, but this idea of him killing the false being within Mm. and really that resonating with me. And I, you know, my read of it and who knows what he meant specifically, but my sense of it is just that like any kind of trauma, you know, familial trauma, difficulty in your relationships as you're growing up, I think that that can leave you feeling like you don't know who you are. Mm. I also understand very deeply the appeal of believing that you can sort of find your true self only through adventuring when in fact, I think that adventures arguably work better as a, an adjunct to therapy <laughs> for some of us. There's a, there's a balance. <laughs> there's a balance. You need adventure in one hand and I don't know, other stuff in another. I don't know what, but I'm really, I'm fully speaking to my younger self here as I think all of us do about Chris mm-hmm. McCandless, but I feel like I so uh, rightly or wrongly see myself in the idea of like, I will fix myself through this journey that I'm taking and through kind of experiencing the world and I will find myself out there and I will be freed from you know, the pain of, of these, you know, these ties that have been with me throughout my life. And really that, that that is part of it. And that draw is real. And I think that, you know, the, the need for experience and to, to challenge yourself and push yourself is so important, but also that, I don't know, you can also do really important work on yourself by uh, living in great physical comfort. (laughs) (laughs) And by having routines and going to Costco, you can do both. And Blair, as you know, when you have adventures, you do have to go to Costco a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Costco is really good for adventures, actually. It's so true. But yes, we're, we're, we're rooting for the guy. We have his journals from his time in the wilderness. Mm. They're not necessarily long, but, uh, you know, we know that he misses some ducks. He <laughs> kills a grouse and he eats it. Mm-hmm. He kills a squirrel and he eats it. He is sort of getting better at hunting with his 22. Has he hunted before this or is he just in classic Chris fashion? Like, I'll figure it out. I'm not sure. I know he's been training for this trip north. So I, yeah, I imagine he's been training. Yeah. I feel like he's probably shot at least a lot of Coke cans if he's able to, to even get a grouse at all. That would be my, my hunch. So he's getting better at hunting small game. And his original plan was to travel through the bush. Mm. So he, he leaves the bus. This is not effective because 
actually the best time to travel in Alaska through the wilderness is in winter, Mm -hmm. like over snow. Being pulled by dogs, arguably. Yes, (laughs) arguably being pulled by dogs. Um, And now as the ground is thawing, it's just turning into like muck. Like it's saturated, it's wet, it's hard to move, there's mosquitoes. He only makes it 15 miles and then he goes back to the bus and stays there. Mm. And he's... He stays there. He explores the area. He's getting better at hunting. I think it's impressive that he could find it again, honestly. Like, I, and I feel like the way people talk about Chris McCandless reminds me of the way we feel when we watch figure skating, where suddenly everyone in America becomes like very critical of someone doing something they could never do in their whole (laughs) life. Like, ah, stepped out of that triple toe loop. Um, Ah, triple flux. (laughs) But like, I feel like we're the kind of narrative to this point. There has been a strong faction of like, he didn't know what he was doing and he should have known more about what he was doing. And it's like, you know, he did. He knew at least more than the average person, I think, about how to accomplish this. Like I would I am positive I would not get that far. No, I'm also positive you wouldn't. I don't think I would. Yeah, this is difficult. Very few people have done what he has done Mm -hmm. up to this point. Mm -hmm. You know, more than a month has gone by. That's an incredibly long time to live off the land with as few things as he brought, Mm -hmm. particularly if he didn't grow up doing it. So it's, this is very accomplished. You know, famously, he kills a moose Mm -hmm. and he's very excited. He spends six days trying to preserve it. He should probably have dried it, Mm -hmm. cut it into strips and dried it. He tries to smoke it. It's a disaster. Mm. The meat spoils. It's full of maggots. He wrote, uh, maggots already, smoking appears ineffective, don't know, looks like disaster. I now wish I had never shot the moose, one of the biggest tragedies of my life. It's a colossal waste. Yeah. But apart from the moose, his journey and his experiment have gone relatively well. Mm -hmm. And after two months of doing this incredibly hard thing, he decides his journey is complete. On July 3rd, he leaves the bus to hike back up to the road. However, when he reaches the river that he crossed, the water is much, much higher than it was. It's raging. It was probably thigh deep before, which remember was already mm-hmm. you know, not, not treacherous. Uh, but the volume has now increased 10 times over from snow melt. It's not crossable. You would die. It turns into rapids. Chris is afraid of water. Hmm. But even if he weren't, uh, this is not a crossable river. It says everything about him, I think, that he's like self-admittedly afraid of water and yet also canoed for 400 miles. Like that, that that's, you know. Yeah. And that this is like a type of person that we are all, you know, hopefully know at least one person who's like this, who like runs directly as fast as possible into the thing that they most fear. Yeah, absolutely. He does. He does not know that if he had gone upriver, he probably would have found a place he could cross. Mm -hmm. This is probably an example of inexperience because I think most people who have spent a lot of time in the backcountry would would think to follow the river up and downstream to look for a crossable place. Mm -hmm. He does not do that. And instead, he turns around and he goes back to the bus, presumably hoping that if he waits, the water level will go down. And he writes in his journal, lonely, scared. Mm-hmm. So now he is not really here by choice anymore. Something has shifted. On July 30th, he writes in his journal, 
extremely weak fault of pot, P-O-T dot seed, short for potato. Mm -hmm. Much trouble just to stand up, starving, great jeopardy. Mm. This is uh, the first sign that something is really going wrong. Mm -hmm. There's a note on the door that he leaves. SOS, I need your help. I am injured near death and too weak to hike out of here. I am all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. I am out collecting berries close by and shall return this evening. Thank you, Chris McCandless. August, question mark. And I think it's interesting that he returns to Chris McCandless at this point. I, I've i always been struck by the fact that he wrote, shall return later this evening. Mm. You know, that it's like, it's such a polite way to send an SOS. Yeah, it is. And what do you think about him him signing his name as Chris again? I don't know what to make of it, um, but I think I think it means something. I feel like that's kind of the fairest attempt you can make at history is to say, I think it means something. I don't know what. We don't well, but like, but we don't have the ability to know, right? And I feel like it's the no. drawing of, you know, trying to draw more of a conclusion then you have the ability to get to and specifically the idea that like you can't tell a story unless you can say like why did he do that and i i think that's not true i think that we can allow people both in our lives and kind of in the stories that we tell and and hear deserve to have areas of themselves that we accept that we don't understand i guess what i hope it means is that we know he went out there and he changed his name because there was something broken in Chris McCandless. My hope is that this journey healed that broken thing that he he set out to fix and to to learn about. And he was able to return to Chris McCandless. Yeah. Uh, the last words he wrote in his journal were on August 12th, he wrote beautiful blueberries. And he also wrote notes uh, elsewhere he wrote, I have had a happy life and thank the Lord. Goodbye and may God bless all. And he wrote, happiness only real when shared. When did you first encounter these words and how did you feel about them then? I, it might have been required reading <laughs> in high school. In figures like this, I, I was thinking a little bit about Anne Frank when mm -hmm. I was reading about Chris mm -hmm. in the sense that they are... They're very, very different situations, obviously very different narratives that were left behind, very mm -hmm. different intentions. Mm -hmm. But I feel like they've both had sort of an iconic line emerge <laughs> that is treated as wisdom because they died. And as like their concluding thought, like their concluding thesis statement of their whole life in a way. Yes, it's it's treated as their thesis statement of a life that ended too soon. So for Chris, it's happiness only real when shared. Uh, for Anne Frank, it's I still believe in spite of it all that people are truly good at heart or something similar to that. This is like the Make Sarah Cry episode. <laughs> she wrote that before she was murdered. Like, I don't know um, if she would still write that at the time she died, but she wrote it at one point. Yeah. And it, I actually think it's weird that that sort of has emerged as her story because I think- It is weird. <laughs> it's like, is that the, the concluding thesis of the Holocaust that people are good at heart? Like, I- I feel like that sentence emerged as 
the moral of the Anne Frank story in order to uh, make Gentiles reading about <laughs> Anne Frank feel better about themselves. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I digress. I feel like I've spent a lot of time thinking about diaries as a literary form and as a form of history. And that's something that's always fascinated me because um, like I was someone who spent a lot of time in grad school writing about Pamela, uh, which is a very boring book, but it's a diary book. <laughs> and just that like diaries are sort of something that we like to imagine is just sort of the unmediated truth telling of a human soul. But in fact, like, I think we arrive at truth by thinking a lot, by kind of processing through writing and by using writing as a way to sort of refine and explore and put words to how we feel, not to just transcribe what's ambiently happening inside of us. It's interesting to think about Chris's diary because it was not necessarily created as a literary work. It seems like these are just notes he left for himself. Mm -hmm. And that means there's a lot of open space to project things onto. Yeah. And boy, have we. <laughs> Early September, moose season opens. Mm. Uh, so multiple hunters actually arrive at the bus on the same day, even though nobody has been there all summer. A couple from Anchorage finds the note on the door mm. and they are too upset to go inside. Reasonable. But another guy shows up and he goes inside. He finds Chris's body. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in his sleeping bag. Uh, an investigation finds there's no signs of significant internal injuries. There's no broken bones, but he has basically no fat left and his remains weighed 67 pounds. Oh God. What, what is his height? I am not sure, but some people have speculated that he did the things he did because he was short. <laughs> I don't think that's why. <laughs> I'm going to Google it right now. He was, he was five, six, which isn't that short. Now, state troopers, uh, didn't immediately know who Chris was when they found his body. So stories started appearing in the news about, mm-hmm. uh, a mystery hiker who had died in the wilderness. It was in the New York Times. It was in the, the more local news, the Anchorage Daily News hmm. and Jim Galeen, who, was the guy who had picked up Chris on his trip out of Fairbanks, saw the news, called the troopers and said, I think I picked that guy up. And he helped them find more information about him. Corrine, Chris's sister, flew out to Fairbanks to identify the remains. Hmm. And she's talked about on the flight home how she felt like compelled to eat every single thing that was in front of her because she couldn't stand the thought that he had starved to death. She wrote, I wanted to fly across the country and discover that it was a colossal mistake or perhaps that Chris had succeeded in pulling off a brilliant scheme to finally separate himself once and for all from the oppression of our parents, just like he said he would. There would be a note for me explaining his ingenious plan and how to get in touch with him. And that would have been a character for him. You see it. You see how that would make sense. Shortly after the New York Times piece comes out, Outside Magazine calls John Krakauer, who just incredible writer, incredible journalist, incredible outdoors person. He gets assigned this story for Outside. Mm. And John Krakauer reaches out to Walt and Billy, Chris's parents. Uh, they want to learn everything they can about 
what Chris has been up to, where he's been. And they give John access to all the documents and photos that were part of Chris's belongings. The story comes out in January 1993. It's a very long feature called Death of an Innocent. And it gets more mail than any other story in the magazine's history. It is hugely controversial. A lot of the letter writers are pissed off. They think that John Krakauer is glorifying someone who was knowingly stupid, went into wilderness without preparation. Mm. Someone wrote, McCandless had already gone over the edge and just happened to hit bottom in Alaska. A writer in the village of Ambler named Nick Jans wrote, McCandless is hardly unique. There's quite a few of these guys hanging around the state. So much alike, they're almost a collective cliche. The only difference is McCandless ended up dead with a story of his dumbassedness splashed across the media. People are really angry. And and some people have a totally different response and are, are sort of in awe of this guy. And like, this is what's so fascinating to me about it all is that like, in America, you can harm someone and people will debate whether it's a problem, but you can harm yourself and, and people will be so mad at you. Right, right. If he'd been a murderer, there he would have been glorified and had a lot of podcasts about him. He he is getting podcasts about him, obviously. But one of the reasons people are upset is, or one of the reasons they say they're upset is that the hunters who found Chris's body had declared that the moose he'd hunted was actually a caribou. They, hmm. So people heard that. It was in the story. They were like, oh, my God, this guy knows nothing. What was he doing out there? John Krakauer develops the story further. He's turning it into a book. He dives into even more research. He learns the hunters were wrong. The caribou was a moose. <laughs> These are moose hunters. They were wrong. Chris was right. So this redeems Chris a little bit. John also connects with Corrine, Chris's sister, and she shares Chris's letters with him and tells him all about their childhood, but she asks that he not include these Mm. details Mm -hmm. in the book. She doesn't want him to write about the horrific Mm -hmm. abuse that they endured as children because she's still hoping to repair her relationship with her parents. (sighs) That is like the saddest and most believable thing I've ever heard. You know, she's hopeful. And in fact, when the book comes out, it calls Corrine's relationship with her parents, quote, extremely good. Mm. And she's hoping it can be. Yeah. And like, now that we know the context, it is like, (laughs) kind of telling that John Krakauer, a very articulate guy, resorted to extremely uh, good. Moving on. (laughs) Well, Krakauer, he's talked about this, wanting to uh, have the suggestion of abuse in the book without making it explicit. And when I read it now, I thought, I thought the suggestion was was on the faint side, I wouldn't have picked up on it. Mm-hmm. This sort of holds true for a lot of its readers. They don't pick up on these undercurrents of abuse. Um, and when the book becomes a bestseller, people get mad at Chris for abandoning his parents. A common, common theme in the response is, I feel sorry for his parents. I don't feel sorry for him. He was selfish. Which is a really interesting part of this whole national conversation, which I feel like we're really in the thick of in an exciting way of, you know, legitimizing the reality and the many faces of of abuse and, and familial abuse and just, you know, your parents not deserving the relationship that they perhaps want to have with you um, or that society is telling you that you are duty bound to have with them. Ryan Ken talked about this a lot in a 
you are a good episode we did recently about moonlight but the, it this feels like such a part of it is the idea that like the worst thing you can do is reject your parents love and and that there's some and even this idea i feel like implicit in it that there's something unnatural about it right like do you, do you get that oh, it breaks a commandment yeah <laughs> yeah i think one of the sort of ways we talk about the American family, whether we know it or not, is that a family, the way we've tended to envision it as a hierarchy with the parents above the children and the patriarch at the top of everything. And that, mm -hmm. you know, society as we've built it in America is run on the idea that we'll have kind of an overarching patriarchy in place that is represented individually in the family. And I kind of suspect that this idea of like, too many divorces, too many single moms is based partly on the idea that like we we can't have all these women and children going rogue without men to tell them what to do mm. because like part of the argument that we always frame it as is like they don't have as many resources as households with with two parents or with a present father and it's like yeah it's too bad that you're the government and can't help them with that <laughs> <laughs> if if only someone had the power <laughs> but uh, yeah i mean that feels that feels very in character with America to for people to be to be very upset about that. Yeah, absolutely. And even Chris's parents seem to really embrace this narrative. They would, wouldn't they? <laughs> you know, that they were wronged, that he was selfish and that they were wronged. Corrine uh, later wrote that by asking John not to include the details of the abuse, in into the wild quote i had allowed the opportunity for my parents to use john's book as their new bible if it wasn't in there it didn't happen wow right and then you have this like outside figure legitimizing the narrative that you want to tell yourself and everybody else and like and and again like i feel like it, it makes total sense to me that you would keep those details out and I don't know. It feels like it's like a human right to have a relationship with your parents. You know, it's like it makes sense to expect that and to want to try and get that however you can. But that's so awful. Yeah. Now, a lot of the discussion, the continuing discussion, the reason that the story has remained relevant is because there has been so much debate about why and how Chris died. And that debate has changed over time. We've had uh, changes in our understanding of the science mostly because of John Krakauer's research. Now, ongoing research. Originally, there was a theory that Chris died because he confused the wild potato with the wild sweet pea, which looks similar and is poisonous. Remember, uh, he wrote in his journal, extremely weak fault of wild potato seeds. This is, this is our clue. And this plant mix-up is the explanation that's shown in the 2007 movie that comes out about Chris, uh, which, by the way, does include more details about the abuse. Mm. Now, John Krakauer had a very strong hunch that Chris had not mixed up the plants, mm. that when he'd written Fault of Wild Potato Seeds in his journal, he knew what he was talking about. The problem was the wild potato seeds. It wasn't that he had been ignorant and mixed up the plants. And John had a theory that there was a toxic alkaloid in the seeds. And after the first edition of the book came out in 1996, a University of Alaska chemical analysis of the wild potato seeds John gathered them, you know, the same ones he'd been eating. Boy, that's that's some good writing. <laughs> it is. It's incredible research. I mean, and, you know, just to say all these details about where Chris went and the people he met and the people he talked to, these were all tracked down by John Krakauer. 
it is his research, it is his work that brings us this story. Yeah. And I, I guess as a quick sidebar too, I mean, John Krakauer, also the author of it's into thin air, right? He has two in two books. Yeah. And that is a, an amazing book that is also the result of a magazine being able to be like, yeah, we're sending you up to climb Mount Everest. It's going to cost tens of thousands of dollars. Go write a story. And uh, well, that was a magazine assignment. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, but like this is the result of like there being institutional support for journalism, you know, like we know yeah. so many of the things we know about each other that help us understand what it means to be human because somebody, you know, was able to put an immense amount of time and immense amount of muscle into figuring all this out. Yeah. I, Outside is one of the magazines that continues to do very good journalism. Yeah. Um, even as, you know, everyone's budgets are getting so, so tight. But I... I don't know if they're sending people up Everest at the moment. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, that should be the goal, certainly. <laughs> uh, so after the first edition of the book came out, the chemical analysis revealed that the wild potato seeds were completely safe. Mm -hmm. Totally hmm. safe. That they were not the problem. John did not let this go. He developed a new theory. This theory was included in the 2007 edition of Into the Wild, that there was a toxic mold growing on the seeds, that the problem wasn't the seeds themselves, but that they'd been stored in a bag. It was maybe a little damp and there was a mold that had grown on them that was toxic. Toxic. This theory also kind of gets debunked. It's not there. There isn't really a lot of evidence to support it's it. It's a nice try. <laughs> it's a good try. In 2013, a writer named Ronald Hamilton wrote an essay with a whole new theory. Mm -hmm. Ronald Hamilton had read about an experiment at a Nazi concentration camp where mm. Jewish prisoners were fed bread made from the seeds of the grass pea, which is toxic. They had developed a condition called latherism, <sighs> uh, which is leads to weakness and eventually paralysis because they were consuming a substance called ODAP. Hmm. ODAP, which w was in this grass pea, it causes this condition, latherism, but it is known to be worse for men between the ages of 15 and 25 who have been mm. eating a very limited diet while being very physically active. Mm -hmm. This is sounding like Chris McCandless. John Krakauer learns of this theory. He sends the wild potato seeds to a lab to have them evaluated for ODAP. The lab found ODAP. Uh, they found 0.394% ODAP by weight, which is enough to be toxic. So Krakauer wrote this up for The New Yorker. Big breakthrough. He receives criticism for not having the research peer-reviewed. Mm -hmm. So he pursues further analysis. And he's paying for this himself. Like, this is not... <laughs> this is not cheap research. This is why you get your books to sell in airports so you can then remain completely obsessed with the topic of one of them and keep like doing science about it. I think, you know, but it wasn't about the science. It's because the discussion of why he died had become a proxy for whether he deserved it or not. Yeah. If he had been poisoned by the wild potato seed, as he wrote in his journal, which is a plant that his book said was safe, then it would be not his fault. And if he had mixed up plants, then he would somehow have had it coming. Right. I mean, I just, I feel so strongly that that's like our little, like, terrified, you know, small creature in the night brain trying to rationalize how, like, I would never, I would never die in the wilderness. And it's like, all, yes, he would. <laughs> 
Well, we're all going to die either in the wilderness or in civilization. Um, so it's it, no one's immune. I know. It's like, do, don't you want to die somewhere scenic? <laughs> yeah. At, at the heart of this, I feel like there's really a response of like, oh, what an idiot to go around dying. I would never die. That's just dumb. And it's like, oh, I have news. Nobody's like, oh, someone got hit by a car. What a Clearly, they had it coming for crossing the street. Well, in L.A., they say that. (laughs) This research indicates, in fact, ODAP is not in the seeds. Uh, Instead, there's a substance with the same molecular mass, something structurally similar to ODAP. Uh huh. What is this? It's still very mysterious. Krakauer goes back to the scientific literature. He finds a study from 1960 about a toxic amino acid called L-canavanine. Uh, that would match this criteria of being structurally similar. The seeds were evaluated for L-canavanine. It was confirmed that they contained 1.2% L-canavanine by weight, which would absolutely have led to serious symptoms, including progressive mm. weakness. This conclusion was published with a group of scientists in October 2014 in the journal Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. It is peer-reviewed. Krakow, I wrote in the afterward to a recent edition, had McCandless's guidebook to edible plants warned that H. alpinum seeds contained a highly toxic secondary plant constituent, as L-canavanine is described in the scientific literature. He probably would have walked out of the wild in late August with no more difficulty than when he walked into it in April and would still be alive today. If that were the case, Chris McCandless would now be 46 years old. And that was written in 2015. He'd now be 52. And so, and so the premise here is that he was weakened and therefore that, that if he had, if he'd found it easier to like forage and hunt for himself during that time, then he would have like maintained, you know, his strength and would have been able to, to leave. I think by weakened, when we're talking about weakened by poison, we're not talking about like, oh, he's tired. We're talking about his muscles are, are not working. Like he cannot, right, right. like people cannot walk. They crawl or they drag themselves along. Like this is yeah. very significant weakness. It's not, it's not like, oh, your muscles are sore. I had a, a moment just earlier today, uh, cause I'm in California where it delights me that there's nasturtium in winter and I like grabbed a nasturtium leaf, <laughs> um, as I walked by and ate it cause nasturtium leaves are delicious. And then I was like, wait a minute. I was like suddenly possessed by doubt about this thing, this plant that I look at like most days of my life and recognize like the back of my hand. I was like, was that, what if it's some, what if it's a varietal that, <laughs> It makes you drop dead, but I appear to be fine. And just like, I don't know, I think like plant identification is, I feel like something that like, if you don't know anything about it, you can imagine that it's easy, but it, it, as far as I can tell, it is like devilishly complicated. The people I know who have the most humility about plant identification are the experts. Right. There are still articles coming out with new information about him uh, with some frequency. Uh, journalists, including Eva Holland, who's amazing, Matt Power, uh, have covered the phenomenon of people making pilgrimages to the bus. Mm-hmm. Eva Holland wrote in Outside that in one summer alone, a dozen people uh, not just went out there, but needed rescue, got into trouble out there, mm-hmm. these pilgrims to Chris's bus. And finally, in the summer of 2020, uh, the bus was removed from the wilderness to become part of an exhibit at the Museum of the North in Fairbanks. Hmm. 
I mean, there's many interesting things, but even as the story has evolved over the decades, mm-hmm. it still evokes these same strong reactions. I mean, people compare Chris to Thoreau, compare him to Jesus. If you look up Chris McCandless on TikTok, there's just hugely popular TikToks of people being like, someday I'm just going to pull a, and then a picture of Chris McCandless comes up. Like people, uh, fantasizing about, and you know, teenagers, teenagers 15 years ago were fantasizing about being like Chris McCandless. Teenagers mm-hmm. now are fantasizing about it. And then there's people who are very vocal about hating Chris. And these people are mostly Alaskans. Hmm. I think it's interesting that two people who have written very negatively about him are Alaskan park ranger Peter Christian and Alaskan journalist Craig Madred, who calls Chris a suicidal narcissist, bum, thief, and poacher. Wow. Both of these people are men who live in Alaska as adults, but are not from there originally. This sort of matches with my experience in Alaska. Um, you know, when I've been up there, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time there, but I'm certainly not Alaskan. I am often told I don't belong or I can't handle the bush uh, or I'm not tough enough or all sorts of things. And the people who tell me that are only ever people who have been in Alaska slightly longer than I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are born in Alaska never, ever, ever say those things to me. They're just like, you're welcome. Let me know if you need to borrow a meat saw. Have some coffee. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's something here with Chris, too, that, you know, the things we hate, often reflect our own insecurities. And the people who hate Chris the most are people who are trying to prove they're not like him. Yeah, it's like, how oh, I hate gentrifiers. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but I, I understand, I understand the Alaskan frustration with Chris also, because I think it's, it, it's terrible to have something real and challenging and big in your life. Mm -hmm. In this case, Alaska and Alaskan wilderness and see other people flattening it into a symbol. Totally. And Chris did see Alaska as a symbol. Like he loved Call of the Wild. He had an idea of Alaska and what Alaska would do for him. And that was a flattened idea of what Alaska is because he hadn't had a chance to learn about it in depth yet. Yeah. And that's really frustrating if you're Alaskan to have people just constantly treating your home as a symbol and and have this guy be glorified for it. But I would argue that the people who hate Chris for this reason are turning him into a symbol. And they're just seeing him as representative of everyone who's ever underestimated the wilderness, ever gone into it unprepared. Um, they're flattening him just as much as he was flattening their home. Totally. Right. And it seems like at least a sizable contingent of the people who feel that way about him are also seeing Alaska as a symbol And it feels like maybe there's even an element of like, see, Alaska likes me. And it's like, she does not like you. (laughs) I mean, and and then there's the practical, the practical uh, concern, which is that Alaskans are really tired of having to rescue these people. I mean, fair. I would be also. I don't like it when I have to pick up a package from somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I just find so interesting the fact that he's so divisive, you know, that there are people who, who, whose goat he just gets in a way that like, you know, murderers and genociders and, and rapists don't get, you know, that they're, it, what is it? I mean, he's like, he's like the classic campfire conversation. In the sense that just like you with your students, like, if the conversation lags, you, 
say Chris McCandless and everyone will talk for a long time. But none of it's really about him. People who hate him, it's not really about him. It's about hating, you know, something they don't like in themselves or hating uh, the responsibility they feel they end up being forced to take for people who underestimate wilderness. I think that people loving Chris, you know, it is about him, but it's also about ourselves. It's about our ideas of wilderness, uh, our ideas of Alaska, our ideas about uh, whether it's possible to start over and leave deep problems and struggles behind. Is there still a place in this world where we can be new again? Hmm. I I think like one of the things that really bothers me about is that it, it feels to me like, I don't know, I'm old enough to say like, he's, he's not a role model, but who is? He's <laughs> someone who many of us have emulated in one way or another, you know, in our lives or, or wanted to emulate. And that he's like, he, I think maybe he's compelling because he's just an example of like a human soul struggling very earnestly with the baggage that it has been given in this lifetime. However you relate to it, I feel like we have some basic human understanding that our life's work here is to try and learn how to love and to love ourselves and to give and accept love. And I feel like this to me is so clearly a story of someone trying to do that and dying tragically in the process. And like, I feel like it's sad that he died and I wish that he hadn't. And I do wish that he had been, you know, brought more quest bars or whatever, but like, I, whatever. <laughs> That's not the point. <laughs> there are ways to start your life over. It's possible. Uh, there are ways to end your life as you know it that don't involve dying, that don't involve yeah. accidentally poisoning yourself with potato seeds but still can give you a life that looks very, very different from how it does now and far more beautiful. And that was our episode. Thank you so much for joining us for the Chris McCandless story. Thank you so much to Blair Braverman for co-hosting. If you want to get more of her work, you can listen to her other episodes with us or you can read her book, Small Game. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing and editing this episode. If you want to come see one of our live shows, there's a link to information for you in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being out here in the world. We'll see you next time.